The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things, and thy well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under thy most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back to this special summer series of the Rector's Forum. It's great to see so many people out here in the midst of the August heat. Somebody asked me, I can't believe, said, they can't believe I'm here. Um, uh, because as you know, um, my son got married. But my son got married. I didn't get married, so here I am. Uh, and by the way, most people think clergy only work one day a week anyway, so you got to show up at least on Sunday. Last week, we um, started a series titled The Grand Drama, Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Consummation. Uh, somebody's already asked me, two people have already commented on the painting on the screen. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the artwork, it is a series of four paintings done by the famous Hudson River painter Thomas Cole. And the series is entitled, The Course of Empire. And uh, the first painting in the series is entitled, Savage. And uh, it shows a magnificent wilderness. Uh, very verdant, very green, uh, just magnificent, but very primitive. Uh, the next painting in the series is entitled, Arcadia, or Paradise. And it begins to show um, the growth of civilization. Uh, you begin to see a few figures over here, you may see uh, a small hut, some fires over there. Uh, the third painting is entitled Consummation, and uh, Consummation is a magnificent city that has grown up out of this wilderness. It's just a magnificent city. And then the fourth painting in the series is the one that you see on the screen, and it is entitled Fall or Destruction. So the idea here is that Civilization goes through these stages. It starts off very primitive. It, it grows. Uh, at first, it's, it seems to be very small. But you can begin to see signs of, of life and prosperity and growth. You can see a, a temple on the hill where people are worshiping. You can see houses and homes and villages beginning to appear. And then you begin to see full-blown civilization with all of its majesty, all of its grandeur. But then, of course, you see a fall and a destruction. And Cole once said that if he were to have done a fifth painting in the series, it would have been savage all over again, because civilization falls and then goes back into that most primitive of all stages. I leave it to you to determine where we are right now in Western culture in that series. Uh, but I can tell you this much, you are not in the first or the second stage. Um, so uh, it's a fascinating painting, and it's appropriate for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, when the British surrendered in October of 1781, ending the Revolutionary War, uh, legend holds that as they marched up to stack their arms between the, red, between the white-coated Frenchmen on the one side and the ragtag Americans on the other, uh, they came to the head of the column. And the British commander, the Earl Cornwallis, feigned illness. He, he could not even muster the, the courage to come and surrender his sword. Uh, to these Americans. He just, he just couldn't do it after all these years of war. The most powerful empire in, on the face of the earth having been defeated. Instead, he um, 
deputized one of his chief lieutenants, um, Brigadier General Charles O'Hara, to offer the sword of surrender. And the story goes that O'Hara got to the head of the column marching between these two ranks, and he gets to the head of the column, and there's a cluster of soldiers there, officers mounted on horseback. And uh, he recognized one of them instantly in a resplendent uniform. And he drew his sword, and he offered the sword of surrender to that man. It was the Comte de Rochambeau, the French commander. Because in his mind, this end of this conflict here on the North American continent was just one more battle and a long, drawn-out conflict between these two European titans, England and France. But the Comte de Rochambeau, to his eternal credit, declined the sword and instead gestured that it belonged not to him, but to the tall Virginian mounted at his side, George Washington. And they said O'Hara just blushed with anger, flushed, and he offered the sword to Washington. And Washington refused the sword <laughs> and gestured that it belonged to one of his chief lieutenants, uh, General Benjamin Lincoln. And that's how the war ended, almost. Because as O'Hara went back to his columns and ordered them to march and stack their arms, he also ordered their band to play a doleful tune. The world turned upside down. Because for them, that's exactly what had happened. Their world, the world as they knew it, the world as they understood it, had been turned upside down. Well, we said last week when we began this series that there is a sense in which we sometimes as Christians feel as though the world in which we live has been turned upside down. The illustration that I used last week was the illustration of a pilot who experiences spatial displacement. We said that there are times when pilots experience extreme conditions, whether that's extreme turbulence or weather, or if they're in uh, fighter pilots in extreme conditions and they do a strong maneuver, the, the G-force can be so great that they can momentarily pass out or momentarily become confused, so much so that sometimes a pilot doesn't know whether he's flying right side up or upside down. And I pointed out that a few years ago, one of the Blue Angels crashed in Beaufort, South Carolina when he experienced spatial displacement. He actually thought that he was flying right side up, he was flying upside down. He pulled back on the stick and instead of going up, he went down and he crashed the plane. And I said that that is an accurate picture of where we are in Western culture today. There are times when we are experiencing a kind of spiritual or moral displacement. We really don't know what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false. I mean, a whole new expression has come into the English language, fake news. Now, those of you who grew up when there were only three networks, and there were people like John Chancellor and Walter Cronkite and David Brinkley, the very expression fake news was oxymoronic. The news was the news, and there was very little interpretation. It was just what? Just the facts. Just the facts. Well, we're not living in that kind of a world anymore. We seem as though we've stepped through the looking glass, as it were, when it comes to these things. And the question is, how are we to determine whether we're right side up or we're upside down in that kind of a world? Well, last week we said there are a number of factors that contribute to our spatial disorientation. Our culture's confusion over moral and spiritual matters. Four forces in particular, just as a pilot may experience extreme forces, so we experience extreme forces. The force of secularism, which is basically the belief that this world is all there is. 
You might as well eat, drink, and be merry. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Because tomorrow, you die. You've seen the bumper sticker, life's the beach. And then you die. Well, this is the idea, you see. And that is very prevalent in our culture today. The other force is the force of humanism. Uh, this is not proper humanism. This is not good humanism. Uh, this is a kind of narcissism that teaches us to believe that the world is all around us, that we are the center of the universe. There's a whole generation of young people. I know I've got uh, some of them living in my house right now. I've got one out of the house now, by the way, but there are some living in the house, and they think that the whole universe is about them. They think that the most important thing in the universe and then they go off to discover that a whole generation of people just like them have been raised to believe exactly the same thing. Relativism. This is the idea that what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, all of these things are dependent upon the circumstances. There is no absolute right, there's no absolute wrong. There are not some things that are always good, always beautiful, always noble. It depends upon your circumstances, and oftentimes it depends on your own personal likes and dislikes. Very popular in our day and age. And of course, the fourth force that exerts great influence on us and confuses us so much is the force of materialism. I pointed out last week that when you see a person riding by in a very expensive sports car, or they have a very um, elaborate house or boat or whatever it may be, we oftentimes say, well, there goes a successful person. Successful in what sense? Because if that person, if that's what constitutes success in our culture today, then Jesus Christ was very unsuccessful. For Jesus himself said that the Son of Man did not even have a place to lay his head. He said, foxes have their hole, birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man has not even a place to lay his head. Which is not to say that material possessions are necessarily bad. Some of the greatest heroes of the Bible were property people like Abraham and David and Solomon. But the point is, these things do not make the man or the woman. They are not the measure of worth and value, no pun intended. But we are taught to believe that it's all about the stuff. We're living in a material world, and I'm a material girl, Madonna said. So, and as I pointed out last week, the Madonna I'm talking about is not the mother of Jesus, so just <laughs> keep that in mind. She never said anything like that. These are the forces that are exerting influence on us, so much so that we think sometimes in our culture that we are flying right side up, but we are flying upside down. And it does have the potential for disastrous consequences for us as individuals, for families, and for society as a whole. We said that the best thing that a pilot can do in those extreme conditions is not trust his own feelings his own emotions, his own gut. Sometimes a pilot cannot even trust what he can see with his own eyes. The best pilots today are taught to be able to fly according to their instrument panel. Because there you're going to get an accurate rendering of what the situation really is. Well, the same is true for us as Christians. If we are going to navigate the difficult time in which we are living, and it is important that we operate according to our instrument panel. And we said that this is what the Bible is intended to be for us. Now, I don't intend to suggest to you that the Bible is necessarily an answer book. 
that all you have to do is turn to the back of the Bible to the index, and if you're struggling with a particular issue, look up this verse, read it, say a quick prayer, and everything's going to be all right. That's not what I'm suggesting to you, because you've heard me say many times before, Christianity at its heart is not about religion, it's about relationship. And anybody that's ever been in a relationship, whether that's with your children or whether it's a marriage relationship, whatever it may be, you know that that's a very dynamic relationship. There are no easy answers oftentimes in life. So I'm not suggesting to you that the Bible is an answer book, but what I am suggesting to you is that it can guide us. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Bible answers the big questions, the questions that make human life of value, that make life worth living. Questions like, who am I? Where did all of this world come from? Why am I here? And where are we going? And what does the instrument panel, what does the scripture tell us about this world? Well, last week we said the first thing was that the Bible tells us, the instrument panel tells us, that you and I are not here by chance or by accident. We are not the result, the consequence of some sort of cosmic accident or cataclysm. The Bible begins with these immortal words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we pointed out that the Bible doesn't begin with any philosophical arguments for the existence of God. It begins with the assumption that there is a God. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in the very first chapter of Romans. Paul says that those who deny the existence of God are what? Suppressing the truth. Paul makes it very clear they're not ignorant of the truth because God's signature is written across the entire created order. It's written into the very fabric of our DNA. From the most primitive cultures to the most exalted of cultures, people have this inborn desire, this longing to worship. Well, that in and of itself, C.S. Lewis says, is a pointer to the fact that there is a God. There is something within us that desires, that longs, that has a need to worship. So the Apostle Paul would say that agnosticism may be an acceptable position. There are those who are ignorant. Paul certainly addressed the Epicureans and the Stoics in Athens. But Paul would say that atheism is an untenable position. It is an untenable position. That's what the Bible tells us, that there is a God and we are here because God created. He called things into existence by the sheer power of his word. Now we pointed out that the Bible is not necessarily interested in how God did this. We said that the Bible's interested in the big questions, not the little questions, not the scientific questions. The Bible is interested in agency more than mechanism, which is not to say that Genesis and the doctrine of creation doesn't have implications for modern science. Of course it does. It's just to say that the book of Genesis was not necessarily meant to be a scientific textbook. But nevertheless, we learn a great deal from Genesis about the world that God created. First of all, we're taught that it's orderly. You can see that in creation. You can see a balance. Now, part of this is Hebrew poetry, we said. But we also said that one of the things about Hebrew literature is that the beauty of the language is designed to convey the beauty of the idea. Uh, that was the, the, the magnificence of the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version of the Bible is not the most accurate, accurate rendering of the Bible. You may love it, but it is not the most accurate rendering of the Bible. But it certainly is the most beautiful in terms of language. And what it does is the beauty of the language conveys the grandeur of the ideas. 
And that's what Hebrew literature does. And you can see a beautiful balance there in those opening chapters of Genesis. God creates the heaven and he creates the earth. He creates the night, he creates the day, he creates the sun, he creates the moon. He creates the land, he creates the sea, he creates the sea creatures, he creates the land creatures. You see that balance there? There's a complementarity in creation. And finally, as the pinnacle of God's creative activity, he creates man. And he creates woman. So there is a balance, there is a beauty in creation. And we're told that God looked upon his creation and he was pleased with it. He declared it to be good. It is a good creation. It was a good world. Now, when we say good, that doesn't necessarily mean perfect. Because what's perfect to you may not necessarily be perfect to me. Those are very subjective categories. What it means is that God looked on his creation and it was good according to what he intended. It was orderly. It was balanced. It was good. And man, of course, was the pinnacle of God's creative activity. And why was man the pinnacle? God's creative activity because man alone of everything that God made was made in his image after his likeness a reflection of his glory and his majesty and that was the world it was a peaceable kingdom but is that the world that we see today do we see that balanced world? Do we see that beautiful world? Do we see a world in which God reigns as sovereign over the created order? Most of the time we see man's great inhumanity to man. We see tremendous injustice and wickedness in the world. We see turmoil, confusion, and violence you and I look at the world that God made today, and what we see is a civilization on the very verge of absolute destruction. Now, what you have to ask yourself is, what went wrong? If this is what God intended, and the instrument panel tells us that is exactly what God intended, made man to be the regent over creation to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of the created order, but that is not the world in which we live. That very world, as we said, is on the verge of destruction. What went wrong? Now you ask many people today what is wrong with the world, and they're going to point to any number of things. If you ask people what's wrong in their life, why they do the things that they do, They'll oftentimes look to blame somebody else or to blame the circumstances or to blame the society or to blame their upbringing or whatever it is. But what does the Bible say actually went wrong with the creation? Not just with society, not just with civilization, but with the creation as a whole. What went wrong? Well, the Bible is very clear. We went wrong. You and I, the majority of the suffering, the pain, the misery that we see and experience in the world today is not the result of natural phenomenon. 
Now, that's not to say that, yes, there are natural phenomena, things like hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and all of those things that bring devastation and suffering to people in the world. And if you're wrestling with that whole issue of suffering, just before I went on vacation back in June, I preached a whole sermon on suffering. So you can go ahead and pull that up, and I'm not going to go through that again. But the reality is the vast majority of the suffering, the pain, and the misery that we experience in the world today, and much of the devastation and misery that you see in the created order today is not the result of natural phenomenon, the outworkings of nature and its processes. Most of the problems that we see in the world today, most of the suffering and the pain is the direct result of human beings. Which is to say, you and I are capable of tremendous things. We are capable of, of creating civilizations like Thomas Cole painted. We are capable of producing libraries and symphonies, magnificent things, producing hospitals for children like the one on this peninsula. But we are also capable of terrible things. If the 20th century teaches us anything at all, the Holocaust teaches us anything at all, mankind, which is capable of great goodness, is also capable of great evil. And that is just reality. We don't have to like it, but that's reality. What went wrong? Man had such an exalted place. We were made in the image of God. And we said last week that to be made in the image of God means we were given personality. Now, you may think that your dog has a personality. And to some degree it does. But when I'm talking about personality, I'm talking about personhood. There is only one creature on the face of the earth that really has personhood. That ability to relate at the deepest level with another. Not just to care for our young, but to have that deep personal relationship. To be made in the image of God means we have spirituality. We have the ability to not only have deep and abiding relationships with one another, but deep and abiding relationships with our Creator. Again, Christianity is not about religion. You can go through all of the, the motions, you can go through all of the trappings of Christianity, but if you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, you've missed the whole thing. John Stott said that, that Christianity without Christ is like a picture frame without a picture. It's like a casket without a jewel. It's like a body without breath. It is dead. It is empty. And you and I alone, of all the creatures that God made, have the ability to have that relationship with God. And because we have been made with personhood, and because we have a relationship with God, we alone are moral creatures. Now, with that great privilege comes great responsibility. Because we are moral creatures, we are also held accountable for our actions. There is such a thing as right and wrong. We've been given great freedom, great creativity, great authority, and dominion over the whole of the created order. We are second only to God. Are you aware of that, second only to God? Now, some people say, well, what about the angels? The Bible actually teaches us that in the last days, you and I will sit in judgment over the angels. You and I have an exalted position. There's nothing quite like it. God gave us an exalted position, and he gave us, listen to this, a specific task. To be God's regents, to care for the created order. As I said, to extend the blessings of Eden, paradise, 
to the whole of the created order. We're told that God took the man and the woman and he formed them from the dust of the earth and he placed them in a garden to do what? To work it. I've got some bad news for those of you who are looking toward retirement. There's no retirement anywhere in the scriptures. Are you aware of the fact that as creatures made in the likeness or the image of God, we were created for work? And when you get to heaven, God's going to put you to work. Now, anybody that's ever done their work and enjoys their work knows that work can actually be a blessing, not a burden. So rest assured that the work that you will do in heaven one day will be a blessing and not a burden. But do not think that you are ever going to retire. It is contrary to the Christian life to sit around and do nothing. And mankind was given a task. Now, some of you are retired, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm hoping one day to get there as well, probably around the age of 92 at this rate. But I understand the desire to retire. But the point is, is that in the Christian life, there's no retirement. There is so much for us to do. It doesn't matter what your age, what your stage in life, there is work for us to do. That is what God created us for. And he gave us great freedom in doing it. But it's very clear, God, in making us second only to him, set parameters. Parameters that were intended for our benefit. To remind us of our exalted position, but also to remind us of the fact that while we were in an exalted position, it was nevertheless second to God. Second only to God, but nevertheless second. Uh, but here's the problem. How's the old poem go? It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. We don't like to be second, do we? And that's part of the problem. We've been raised in a narcissistic environment. We've been taught to believe that we're number one, that it's all about us, it's all about me. Pointed out last week, we live in a selfie society. My goodness, people take pictures of their lunch and they send it off to you and they buy selfie sticks to take pictures of themselves. This is bizarre. <laughs> but that's the world in which we live. Can you see how it's contrary to what God intended? It's not all about me. And that was the problem. Mankind, human beings, are not satisfied with being number two. And the result is that evil seizes an opportunity. If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 3, where we can see what really went wrong. What went wrong with human beings, and as a consequence, what went wrong in our world? Now, there's a great deal of symbolic language here, but I'm just going to say for the record that I believe that the fall was an historic event. It really happened. It is the best narrative to explain the world in which you and I live. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, the real power of a, of a, he said, I believe in Christianity is, I believe the sun is risen, not because I saw it happen, but because by it, I can see everything else. The real power someone once said, of, of a flashlight is not the power that it produces, but 
the ability that it has to illuminate non-luminous objects. Well, that's what the Bible does. It illuminates. It, it, it is not only a book about us, it's a book that explains us. So Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I want you to notice how evil operates in the world. The first thing that evil always does is it seeks an opportunity. An opportunity to create doubt. To create doubt. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and he said to the woman, did God actually say? In other words, are you sure you heard God correctly. Are you sure you got it right? Maybe, maybe you didn't hear it exactly the way God put it. You'll notice if you go to Matthew's Gospel, this is exactly how Satan tempted Jesus. Jesus had just been baptized in the Jordan River. It was the beginning of his public ministry. We're told that as he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, the Spirit of God descended upon him. He heard a voice from heaven thunder, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. And then the next verse says he was led out into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by Satan. Now, that was Jesus' coronation ceremony, as it were. This is my beloved son. The Spirit descends on him. Everybody witnesses it. And the first thing that the devil says to Jesus in the wilderness is, if you are the Son of God, turn this bread, these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, for surely he will not allow you to dash your foot against a stone. If you are the Son of God. What do you mean, if? See, that's what evil does. It just plants that tiny little seed of doubt. And if it's watered, if we care for it, if we nurture that doubt, it eventually becomes not merely doubt, but unbelief. So that's how evil operates. It begins to produce doubt. Doubt about what? Well, first of all, about God's goodness. 
I want you to compare for a moment. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, with Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 reads this way again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, listen to it, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now that's how the serpent put it to Eve. Did God say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, that's terrible. Compare that to what God actually said in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and following. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now isn't that interesting? God is very gracious, very generous. He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the one. The serpent comes and says, did God really say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Isn't that curious? What does evil do? Evil turns a positive invitation into a negative prohibition. And that's oftentimes the way people look at Christianity, isn't it? Oh, you are just a bunch of killjoys. You're always against things. You know, when the pastor stands in the pulpit and happens to preach on the whole subject of marriage, people say, oh, he's just against divorce. Well, what if he's really for marriage? <laughs> See, there, there are different ways of looking at this. God had actually been quite generous with them. He only made one little restriction on them, and that restriction was intended for their benefit, wasn't it? To remind them of their rightful place in the created order so that things would not get turned upside down. That's like inviting somebody into your house if you run an Airbnb. I know those are controversial here in Charleston, so we're not getting into that. But at any rate, you let out your house as an Airbnb, and you come in and you say, you can eat of anything in the kitchen. Whatever's there, go ahead in the pantry. Make yourself at home. But you cannot eat the cyanide capsules underneath the sink. <laughs> and evil comes along and says, did the owner actually say, you cannot eat of anything in the kitchen? No, what the owner said is that you can eat of anything, but don't do this. Why? It's bad for you. See, that's what evil does. You and I have this longing to be number one, to be the center of the universe. And evil comes along. It seizes an opportunity. It creates doubt about God's goodness. The next thing that evil does is once it has planted that seed of doubt, it then moves on to deny the word of God. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. Now, God had actually said that they would die. <laughs> On the day if you eat it, you will what? Surely die. But evil comes along, having planted that seed of doubt, and then says, oh, but you will not die. A complete denial of the word of God. And then what does evil do? Well, it encourages a rejection of God's authority and promises exaltation of self. Plant the seed of doubt, deny God's word, and suggest that if you rebel against God, you can be like God. Master of your own fate, captain of your own destiny, sovereign of your own life. Bishop Salmon used to have a wonderful expression 
when we would have diocesan conventions, you know, every now and then the general convention would do something that would just be outlandish and our convention would meet. We feel we need to file a resolution that sort of clarified our position on these theological matters. And uh, somebody proposed, uh, it happened at every convention. Those of you who have been delegates to convention, you know this is true. Somebody would always propose that we're going to pass a resolution that says Jesus is Lord. And Bishop Salmon would always stand up against it. He said, we are not passing a resolution that declares Jesus to be Lord. And some people would say, well, why would we do that? And Bishop Salmon said, because Jesus is Lord whether we vote him as Lord or not. He said, you can vote on the sex of a rabbit, but it doesn't change the sex of the rabbit, although it does today. I mean, God <laughs> forbid. But there is a sense of truth to that, isn't it? Jesus is Lord whether we vote him to be Lord or not. But you see, that's what evil does. It turns the world upside down, which is why the prophet Isaiah says that the root elements of all sin are these faithlessness, which is to say a lack of trust, rebellion, a rejection of authority. You've seen the bumper stickers that say question authority. It doesn't say question bad authority or corrupt authority. It says what? Question all authority and pride. Pride. C.S. Lewis says of all the vices, pride is the most dangerous. And what happened to mankind? Mankind succumbed. We're told that the woman ate of the tree and she gave to her husband and he ate of the tree. And innocence, innocence came to an end. Innocence came to an end. You know, it's a moving thing to watch your child get married, as I did last night. And um, my son and his wife now, I was going to say girlfriend, but wife, um, they're unique. Um, they have never dated anybody else. Seven years. And uh, when he went off to college, I sort of encouraged. I said, you know, maybe you ought to think about it. And he said, Dad, she's the only one for me. And she set her cap for him, and there was never anybody else. And last night, this whole room was transformed. In fact, I, it was thumping with music. I thought I was going to have to do an exorcism before I could teach the class here this morning. <laughs> but there's thumping music, and all of this was going on. But here was a head table up here, and behind them was a sign that said, it was always you. Now, I have to confess, they are, um, he's going off to law school in three days, and she's going to pharmacy school. They're both going to be at the University of South Carolina. And they've got a little house up there, a tiny little house up there where they are uh, going to be living. And they took some things up to the house last week. And um, I said, well, what did you do up there today? And he said, oh, I put our bed together. And I went, You know, I wasn't used to that. I wasn't accustomed to that. I certainly wasn't prepared for that. But, you know, we're living in a culture in which, you know, many of you grew up believing that you, you should not have sex before marriage, that you should wait until you were within that covenant of marriage, which is certainly what the Bible teaches. It's what God intended for husbands and wives. 
Now, we tend to think that that's just God being a killjoy. And, and, and certainly, if you read a good book about this, a wonderful book, here's a, here's a recommendation to you, by Mary Eberstadt called Adam and Eve After the Pill. Great book. But it just talks about what birth control did. How all of a sudden, sex was no longer for the purpose of procreation or for the binding together of husband and wife as one flesh and holy matrimony. It was recreational. You could have all of the fun, but none of the consequences. That was the idea. But it certainly isn't true. When a young couple or an older couple, it doesn't matter, out of the context of marriage has sexual relations, a bond is created. The man shall leave his mother. The two shall become one flesh. And if you have multiple partners, you have multiple connections, and you bring all of that baggage into your marriage then. And I thought to myself, you know, now I'm not trying to be crass, but I just want you to think about it for a minute. You're grown up, so I think you can handle this. I thought to myself, that young couple are going to go off and they're going to have their honeymoon night and I might as well disabuse my Victorian sensibilities about what's not going to happen or what's going to happen. If it's a healthy relationship, it's going to happen. They're going to have sexual relations. They're going to produce grandchildren someday, someday. <laughs> you know, you go into a relationship like that, if you've never had sex before, you're nervous. You don't know what to expect. But if you've never had it with another person, who can say, well, was it good for you? I don't know. <laughs> never had it with anybody else. It was great for me. Fantastic. You see, this is God's way of what? Protecting us. This is God's way of shielding us. This is God's way of producing a relationship that is strong, that can weather the storms of life. It's not meant to be prohibit prohibitive. It's meant to be a blessing to us. But evil takes these things and does what? It distorts them. The story goes that man succumbed. And what were the consequences of the fall? Well, the first one was death. Very clearly death. God had said, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Human beings, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, my friends, are not merely sick. We are dead, according to the scripture. We have died in spirit, in soul, and in body. And you can see all of those present here in Genesis 3. The man and the woman died spiritually. That is to say, in terms of their relationship with God. The way it's depicted here in Genesis is that they have an intimate relationship with God in which he comes and joins them in the cool of the day and walks with them. Now, when you're living in Charleston in August, in the muggy humidity, isn't that a wonderful image of being in the cool of the day in a garden? Some of you remember that old hymn, he walks with me and he talks with me. That's the idea you see. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's just a beautiful image. Intimate. But after they eat of the tree, after they succumb to temptation, after they feed that doubt and it grows into unbelief, that intimate relationship is severed. We're told that when God came, as was his custom, walking in the cool of the day, he called out to them, where are you? And we're told they hid themselves. 
You know, children oftentimes hide when what? They've done something wrong. Dogs will hide when they do something wrong. They died in terms of that intimate relationship with God. They died in terms of their souls. That is to say, their moral reasoning. What was the first thing that God said? Did you eat of the tree which I told you not to eat from? And what was the response? What did the man say? Did he actually take responsibility for his own action? No, he says, the woman you gave me. Now, we all laugh about that and said, oh, that's typical of a man. He's going to blame the woman for everything. But actually, what the man was doing was blaming God, wasn't he? The woman you gave me. In other words, this is your fault, not mine. See, that's what we human beings do. None of us wants to take responsibility for our own actions. When somebody accuses you of something and you're guilty, what's generally the first thing you do? You try to explain it away, don't you? You try to defend yourself. It's a visceral reaction. That's exactly what we see here in Genesis. This is why I say the Bible is so powerful. It illuminates us. It describes us. And eventually there was a death in the body. And what makes physical death so terrible is that it produces ultimate alienation. An ultimate alienation. And we're not going to have time to get through it today. But the really sad part is that the fall of mankind, the fall of the first man and the first woman, not only affected them, it affected others. We need to understand, as John Donne once said, no man is an island unto himself. We are all part of the main. Your actions affect other people. Your actions, my actions, affect innocent people. And they can affect them positively or they can affect them negatively. And that is not God's fault. That is the consequence of being made in his image. God's decisions affect us. Our decisions affect other people. And we certainly see that with Adam. This is what we call the federal headship of Adam. He is our representative. You know how this works in our government. If Congress decides to raise taxes, does that affect you? Of course it does. If they decide to lower taxes, does that affect you? Of course it does. Well, Adam was the perfect man. Eve was the perfect woman. They represent us. And the decisions that they make affected others every generation down through the centuries, which is why we are all, and you've heard me say this many times before, OS positive. We've all got the illness. And you say, well, it's not fair. You make decisions that affect your children, don't you? If you make a bad business decision, you take a risk, and you lose everything, and your family is homeless, do your actions affect other people? Of course they do. If a mother decides to use drugs and she passes on that addiction to her unborn child, was that the child's fault? No. But the mother's decision, you see, affected the innocent. And the same is true for us. Man's rebellion in the garden affected all of us. And the result was that we no longer live in the garden. They were cast out of the garden, weren't they? They got to live in the garden, but where were their children born? Outside the garden 
outside the protective custody of God's care and concern. We live outside the garden. And God's law, which was intended to be for our protection, rather than being a blessing, becomes a burden to us. And what we're going to see next week is that our decisions not only affect fellow human beings, they have a disastrous effect upon the whole of creation. So we'll take a look at what that looks like next week. But there's always good news. Just as in that painting, you can see a progression. There is a progression, but it does not end with fall and destruction. In God's great story, in God's great painting, in God's great series and drama, there is a fall, but there is always the hope of redemption. And that's what we'll take a look at in the weeks to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is a light unto our path. It does illuminate. It illuminates the world in which we live, but most importantly, it illuminates you for who you are, and it illuminates us for who we are. Grant us the grace to acknowledge the fact that we are not what we were intended to be. Grant us the grace to repent, to seek your face, and to enjoy the hope of redemption. For our sake, for the sake of the whole world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.